What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny. And today I have the lengthy bioed Spencer Clavin joining me. What's up, Spencer? Well, I'm doing great. Thanks. Nice to see you, Emmett. I feel like yeah. I come like Jacob Marley trailing the shackles of my biography. <laughs> um, and that <laughs> is a ponderous because... chain. Yeah, and that is only because you are such a busy dude, so I really appreciate you coming on. Let me see if I can do this from memory. So you are the author of your most recent book, which is How to Save the West. So far, so good. All right. You are the host of the Young Heretics podcast. Uh, you are the features editor at The American Mind and host their weekly podcast, The Roundtable, which comes out on Thursdays. And you are the associate editor of the Claremont Review of Books, and you host its corresponding podcast, The Close Read. You know, you even got some stuff in there that I had forgotten. So that's good. I should probably go take <laughs> care of those responsibilities. Uh, yeah. yes, that's terrific. Thank you. Um, and it's, it's so excellent to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, this is going to be a, I was joking with Spencer before we hopped on, this is going to be a uh, word cells podcast for shape rotators. Today, I have a lot of some industry people on, but one of the things that I figured Spencer could help me try and find the language for is our sort of uh, our neo-pagan moment when it comes to uh, climate change and energy. And I think this We'll get into this. I have some theories about how this even shows up in the way people relate to our infrastructure in mm. America yeah. uh, and that Apple is part of that. But uh, the occasion for this is the dreaded Apple video starring Octavia Spencer as Mother Nature, who uh, comes to bully the DEI subs at Apple HQ um about what they're doing to save the planet so you can find the video in the show notes it's five minutes if you can watch it i found it very hard i told spencer that i didn't think i was going to watch it uh that somebody would have to strip me down at gitmo to make me watch it and then all that had to happen was that i wanted to have him come on the podcast and talk about it so i had to have him on um, let's talk about this piece you wrote for your Substack, which by the way, everybody can subscribe to in the show notes. Um, it is, is this just simply rejoice evermore.substack.com and the piece is called mother nature returns. So let me ask you, how did you come to this piece? Well, like you, I saw this cringe fest circulating around the internet, this Apple video. And perhaps unlike you, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to watch this because <laughs> it's so clear to me that Apple is now really saying the quiet part out loud, laying the cards on the table, whatever metaphor you want. This is a neo-pagan morality play. And I've been banging on about this. I've been kind of like riding this horse forever. And I thought, OK, this is really now just kind of too on the nose to ignore. So I, for my sins, and so that you don't have to, I watched the video all the way through, actually watched it a couple times because I found it so like train wreck style riveting. And the question that occurred to me, which is kind of inspired or informed by my background, which I should say is in ancient literature. And so I'm, I tend to think about these things with kind of a long historical view. And my 
kind of prior assumption going in is usually that not all that much has changed, that although the stuff that people like you do and talk about has radically improved many material aspects of our lives, fundamentally human nature and the spiritual state of man is kind of an enduring constant. And if you think about things that way, a lot of things start to make more sense that seem kind of inexplicable from the narrow materialist paradigm of the 21st century. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, the, the, my, my governing question is, what is this a metaphor for? And in other words, this is supposedly not a real thing, right? If you asked Tim Cook at Apple, or if you asked whatever team came up with this video, you know, is there really a, such a thing as Mother Nature? Does this woman control the, the heavens and the earth? They would instantly say no. If this is obviously a joke, it's a little kind of fun play, whatever they would, would say. You know, it's a, it's a messaging strategy. But if you ask the question, okay, so this is a metaphor. What's it a metaphor of? What's behind the metaphor? Um, you start to come up with some really weird answers because it, it can't be a metaphor for human suffering, right? It can't be a metaphor for just we people collectively need to do better because our lives will be improved if we sort of moderate our, our uses of resources. Because if that's the case, then there's, there's really not enough there to justify dismantling modern industry, wanting to suck all the carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, these really extravagant claims, which often seem to me to boil down to not just humans will be uh, happier if they moderate their resource usage, but actually the earth will be better and humans might as well not be on it at all. The maximally good outcome here is for zero human intervention in, in the environment. So this isn't just an attack on, you know, on, on, on human resource usage. This is also somehow about nature itself more generally, and not just animals, but like trees, right? And the ecosystem and this whole kind of series of cause and effects that we think of as described by natural science. And so gradually you start to realize that what's being depicted here is the, the theological belief or the philosophical conviction that science isn't just describing kind of morally neutral causes and effects. Well, if you do this, you get that. You put in this input, you get this output. Um, it's actually assigning a moral character to the natural world itself. And this has a name in the classical tradition. It's called paganism or idolatry, sometimes pantheism. I mean, all of these words describe the belief that the world out there, independent of us, has its own moral characters and imperatives. And if we offend the morality of the universe, let's say, if we transgress against the moral laws that are already written into the domain of science, um, then we will suffer and be punished. And concepts like punishment and suffering, of course, are already attributed uh, a moral mind to the world outside of us. And once you arrive there, you realize there actually is no way to describe or express that except to say that there is a kind of spirit in nature. Maybe it doesn't look like Octavia Spencer, but somewhere out there, there is a mind or a heart or a soul of the world that is supposedly judging us. Um, and <laughs> we might think, well, that's a somewhat more arcane and abstruse and sophisticated way of saying that than just like, well, we worship the earth gods or whatever. But 
the the problem is that when we actually look at the ancient sources for paganism, we realize that they too were very sophisticated about these sorts of things. We're not the first people to come up with describing the universe through math. We're better at it than than most people throughout history, but we're not the first people to think that nature is governed by laws. We're not the first people to think that those laws have a moral cadence and character. We're just the first people to deceive ourselves into thinking that by saying that, we're saying something, quote unquote, spiritually neutral or secular. Um, when in fact, what we're doing is the exact same thing that people used to do when they did the rain dance, when they worshipped, uh, you know, Inanna or Ishtar or any one of these kind of personifications of natural forces. Um, that's what's going on here. And Apple is being more honest than they, I think, know about that. Hard to say it better. Uh, so one of the things that uh, I've noticed about this sort of neo-paganism is sort of this idea or this desire for reunification with nature, that that really seems to be part of it. And, you know, they there's this moment where the guy who's sort of heading up Apple's like energy division or whatever uh, says, well, thanks to your yeah. great wind and sun, Mother Nature, you know, we have decarbonized. By the way, that's not true. Apple uses what hmm. uh, this thing Enron created called renewable energy credits, where they basically burn carbon, but then sort of offset that by buying these credits that allegedly go to building wind and solar somewhere. So the idea hmm. is that because they have committed this money to clean energy somewhere in the world that that it's sort of like indulgences for their carbon emissions today that is basically what is happening there and Whoa. what they want is to somehow reunite human life with the cadences and rhythms as you said of the planet and you can see this even down to infrastructure. So Apple has rolled out these things where, you know, there's a default setting on your phone now where it will only charge when it's using the most clean energy possible on your grid or something like that, right? Otherwise it will charge slower, right? So you can see yeah. how they're actually trying to realize this in, in physical life. It's not just that they have these ideas that are kooky or weird and have some material implication. It's that they are attempting to realize it socially and physically at scale. And that is what makes neo-paganism uh, a force in that. But one thing that you bring up in your piece that I thought was very, very important is that if you make nature the standard, you might not like the way in which it standardizes your life. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about what nature is as an idol and how that differs from, let's say, founding beliefs in America. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there is a passage in C.S. Lewis's book, That Hideous Strength, which is kind of his allegory of modern scientism. It's the you know, a, tr a trilogy about space travel, but also about sort of the the spiritual powers that rule over the physical world. And at the end, one of the characters who has sort of been struggling with fidelity in her marriage and, and trying to figure out basically how to manage her obligations to her husband uh, while being, quote unquote, a sort of 20th century modern woman, um, 
she has a vision of a kind of severe and and wild um, fertility goddess that comes in and upends her entire life, essentially. And she brings this to her spiritual advisor, and her spiritual advisor says, you know, you, you wouldn't accept the old gods in their baptized Christian forms. And so now you must meet them in their unbaptized forms. And this idea that, you know, the, the things that the pagan world existed to describe, this kind of pagan pantheon of, of characters, was there to give form and expression to something real about human life, which is that there are powers greater than us. And this is something which, you know, if it sounds kind of new agey and, and spiritual, you can refer it back to something like Al-Anon. You know, when you go to Al-Anon and you um, try to get clean because you've you know, been addicted to whatever substance, one of, one of the first things you do is you acknowledge that there are powers higher than you. And you're allowed to say that one of those powers is gravity, for instance, just a fact of the world that you can't contradict. And in the ancient world, we they used to use these gods in some sense as a way of embodying or personifying those powers that rule over us. And what that basically boils down to is the state of nature, is the kind of raw, savage um, churning of matter against matter. And since that world is governed, scientists know, by kind of implacable mathematical laws, um, if you look to it for your ultimate meaning, for your ultimate sources of satisfaction, for your final goal, um, you, you will ultimately find that you've placed your trust, your hope in something totally heartless, something that has no interest in your personality, in your, in your spiritual self, uh, in your ideals, in your morality. Um, you've, you've placed all of those things in the wrong location when you say, well, I'm going to be good by serving Mother Nature. Mother Nature doesn't give a flying rats about your, your values, your morality, uh, your loveliness. This is, those concepts are totally absent from nature as a system, nature as a series of powers. Um, and the only way for nature or the heavens or the whole kind of created universe to take on that moral character is for us to believe and assert that what we experience in the moral universe is actually something even higher than nature, that morality is infused into nature from above. And so it's not just our personal preferences or our whims, but a, a communion with some ultimate law that rules even over powers like gravity. Um, if if there's nothing beyond those powers, then all of our kind of personal preferences, all of our humanity, all the nice things that we celebrate when we talk about, quote unquote, progress or, you know, technological advancement, any one of those things in which we put our trust in, which we value rightly, um, is going to find itself totally obliterated in the face of a, a natural world that really doesn't care about us unless it's receiving orders from on high. Um, and so your two options are basically are what you said, which is to just dissolve your humanity and make it of no account in the face of a kind of impersonal machinery of nature to dissolve yourself into that or to believe by faith that what you are actually isn't expendable, that without your attachment to the moral universe without your perception of the qualitative world without your experience of life as a human being um 
there's something irrevocably missing from the world. And so your job is not to dissolve yourself into nothing, but to infuse yourself into nature and to reckon with it as kind of one servant of God to another, if you like. Um, if if that's not what you're doing, then you really are ultimately just serving what the Bible would call a cruel master. That is an idol, somebody that will take you, uh, take your worship and bleed you dry. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the questions that's difficult for people to answer is how did we get here? You know, how did we arrive at a place where this is starting to vying for, this is vying for a dominant place in sort of the buffet of belief options in America, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that it has such a hegemony over how we think about uh, living in an industrial society. And I think for me, one of the things that I have tried to piece together is that I think as we go from sort of the Machiavellian moment where we move away from the classical standards of uh, politics, let's say this is sort of Strauss's argument in the three waves of modernity um, towards uh, a more, let's say, material, almost practical sort of uh, limited sense of what political obligation might be, which is just, you know, sort of security uh, you know, uh, happiness, not necessarily excellence in, in, in the way that the ancient ancients meant that, um, that that has this impact on Francis Bacon. And then that also has an impact on Rousseau and what we get in place of a kind of, let's say Christian eschatology in the West is we get history itself as this sort of force that gives us meaning and propels man forward. But that all collides in the 20th century with the push for communism and fascism and the great gauntlet through which liberal democracy crosses. And one of the things that happens after all of those horrors are experienced is that there is no longer this faith in the secular world, not even necessarily in liberal democracy. around the idea of the human subject as a historical force at all. We move into a post-subjective world. And what I mean by that is that there is no longer this faith that through human actions, we can overturn what we're experiencing in the world and reach for this extension of our human horizon. We really see that in the 60s counterculture with the post-colonial movement and how that impacts the left as it moves away from labor and basically calls into question all of the Western assumptions around the idea of the historical subject and its ability to achieve freedom overall. But I think that what we're seeing is an undeniable human need for some sense of place and meaning within history. And that neo-paganism with its eschatological horizon of climate change supplies that for people. Mm -hmm. And this way in which people want to harmonize our lives with this, uh, I I think they will be surprised to find out, incredibly indifferent God of nature (laughs) Um, Hmm. uh, is an attempt to achieve a type of theosis 
with natural phenomena. And that to me puts this sort of beyond the realm of just rational policy debate and into much weirder territory. Um, And really, I think, undermines some of the maximalist enlightenment claims about what is possible for humans to do with instrumental rationality uh, on its own. Yes. Okay. Very interesting. There's there's so much to what you said there. And I think it's really at this point, the the environmental eschatology is sort of one of two options. The other one being technological transhumanism. And in this respect, in the way that you're describing, they serve much the same purpose, which is attempting to furnish a plausible vision of transcendence for humanity, for the human subject. Um, But because the human subject itself has proven so disappointing as a source of ultimate meaning, both forms of transcendence ultimately amount to transcendence out of your humanity altogether in the case Mm. of environmental eschatology, the obliteration or the minimization of of human influence in the world, the sort of subsumption of human action into natural behavior, natural actions, and finally, the kind of merging or the identity of what we do with technology and what nature already does in, in the earth. Um, that's one way out uh, kind of to, to just uh, environmentalize yourself. And the other way out is to technologize yourself. That it's really, it's not nature that does humans better than humans. It's machines that do humans better than humans. And so we are what uh, Bohan, one of the uh, great uh, transhumanist theorists at at Oxford says, we are ape-brained meat sacks. That effectively Mm. all we are is this kind of outdated wetware. um, And there are now things that do everything we do better than us, or there will be soon. And so... The future for us, salvation for us, lies in a melding with those technological entities in such a way that our kind of particular human experiences, the qualia of of our experiences, um, are, are no longer really relevant to our consciousness. And what we do is we calculate at higher and higher speeds until in some sort of singularity, our identity, our individualism is dissolved and absorbed into a kind of impersonal working of of gears and diodes. Um, And I think you're right that a lot of this is kind of baked in. Like there's a sort of what did you expect uh, feeling when you survey not just the history of um, kind of Marxism as, as you adumbrated, but also I think this turn with you know, Galileo and certainly the French interpreters of Newton, guys like Laplace, you know, um, the use of the word objective and the concept of objects and objectivity um, to stand in essentially for truth, that the only way that something can be said to be true is if it refers to mind independent objects. Um, and you get a hint of this in, in Galileo with with the distinction between primary and secondary qualities, where he says, like, you know, smells, textures, colors, these things are are only names that we give to our experiences, but body, extension in space, like collision, these things are real. They're primary. They actually exist in the objects. Um, and this translates very nicely, I think, for us into our modern use of words like subjective to mean basically arbitrary, right? I mean, we now use that word as a synonym for it, it could be any other way. Like we've just kind of happened to 
have this experience of Bach as transcendent, but that's your subjective opinion, man. You know, everything else, mm -hmm. you could experience Cardi B as transcendent and that would, that would be the same. Um, and th this all arises out of, I think, a, a conviction that what we are is basically a kind of gaseous accidental effusion <laughs> out of the primordial sludge. Like, it's the sludge that's real, that's working, and, and the collision of atoms and the interaction of matter. And it just so happens that in the many random permutations of that series of encounters, you've ended up with this upright chimp that can feel and fear and, and desire and, and have memories. Um, but those things are a smokescreen. They don't have anything to do with the truth. In fact, they are always an abstraction away from the truth. And if we could get rid of them somehow, we would be more closely aligned with with reality. And maybe we would do that by melding the nature, maybe with technology. But what um, Nietzsche, of all people, really, I think, sees about this um, that that many people in his time don't see, and it's taken us until now to really realize what Nietzsche sees is this puts a ceiling on the world. This this places a kind of barrier above which nothing can go. And it's the material barrier. It, it, it makes it impossible for us to aspire or aim at anything that really would kind of get us beyond the mere machinery of nature or of technology. And as a result, our only option is to dissolve ourselves somehow into that machinery. Um, it's a kind of sort of false transcendence that replaces the, the now impossible transcendence of uh, aspiring to something higher than nature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought up Galileo because one of the things that struck me in grad school, somebody brought it up. I remember somebody brought it up in seminar at St. John's and I was like, what are they talking about? That sounds yeah. real. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, damn, that guy was right. So if people haven't read a dialogue concerning two chief world systems from Galileo, it is a dialogue. It involves several different characters talking over sort of uh, what Galileo reveals to be his hyper-abstract mathematical physics, right? I think now we might call it like proto-Newtonian or something like that. So yeah. he has thought experiments of frictionless planes and things like that, abstractions that don't exist physically, but allow us to unlock certain truths about the physical world. Now, this is a huge, anybody's familiar with Galileo, uh, challenge to certain like Aristotelian theological Aquinan assumptions that are the church's operating on at the time, which has a very different idea about how things work. And there is this moment where one of the interlocutors goes to end the conversation of the day because the dialogue plays out over several days. And before he gets on his galandola, he says that it has left him cold. Right. And what you sort of understand by that is that the world that is being described has been blanched of a certain type of meaning so that it could be understood better. And I think the hope was that if we could evacuate all of these unnecessary adornments on physical reality, then we could get to the capital R real. Yeah. Yeah. And that there is this big passion for the real that, like I said, culminates in the explosions of the 20th century. Um, and really, I think what we've learned is that we have displaced certain quote-unquote myths or 
theological truths to which we to which we once sort of averred and have replaced them with things that are yet more ancient than what was originally displaced. And that I think is an incredibly curious turn of events uh, for yes. us to be experiencing right now. <laughs> uh, one meme that I've seen floating around the internet lately, not to bring your uh, soaring uh, discourse down to the level of the internet. Meme, oh, no, we're, but... we're fairly postmodern, Spencer. We do Terrific. high and low on this Absolutely. podcast. Oh, I love it. Great. I'm so, I feel so at home. I feel so seen. I feel so recognized. <laughs> Um, so one meme that has been floating around lately is a, a kind of revisitation of the new atheists who were like the Richard Dawkinses and the Sam Harrises mm -hmm. and uh, the Christopher Hitchenses of the world. And <laughs> this kind of realization that the new atheist project has basically ended in a, a, a pagan orgy, essentially, that this, the attempt to uh drain the world of its spirits and of its life has only ended up in a a more extreme and unreflecting kind of spirituality that it doesn't recognize itself as such because it flatters itself to be quote unquote objective and so this is where now you see our politics saturated with kneeling and begging for absolution and these images of the future in which some sort of cataclysm like erases or transforms humanity. And you think like, hmm, where have I seen all of these elements before? It's like, oh, right, in every religion ever, especially the most primitive. And it's the most primitive religions that don't recognize themselves or that recognize themselves least. Um, and if so that's really what we are now looking at, um, in, in part because, as Bob Dylan reminds us, you got to serve somebody. There is a kind of structure mm -hmm. in the human heart that um, always places something highest and therefore worships it. Um, there's there's really no difference between those two phrases except a kind of secularism or a, or a religious flavor. Um, sure. And so you, you, you have on the one hand this kind of religious attitude that has evolved and on the other this aspiration to a world stripped naked of any uh, human accoutrement, as, as you indicated. And it's not, in fact, just the new atheists who aspired to do this, but also, unfortunately, many of the architects of the scientific revolution, even if they themselves would not have identified, if you were, if you like, as uh, atheists or materialists or anything of that nature, it was this conviction that, as Galileo writes in another piece, the, the essayer, mathematics is the language of the universe, that truth and philosophy is, mm -hmm. is written in the language of mathematics. And its words are things like circles and squares, right? Shapes and uh, geometric entities. And this is an effort, a self-conscious effort to pierce behind the veil that Plato had essentially set up across the sky. If you look at what Plato has to say about things like uh, astronomy in the Republic, he says, you know, astronomers may flatter themselves that they look at higher things because they look upward. But that's like saying you are elevating your thoughts because you're looking at the ceiling. Mm. Uh, what's really going on in astronomy is that you are using low things such as physical sense perceptions to elevate the consciousness and the uh, sort of reflecting mind beyond tough phenomena, which is to say the things that appear, the phenomena of, of our sensory experience and sense data. 
And from that point on, really, mathematics in the Greek tradition, at least, becomes about using abstractions to describe and categorize and give order to the experience of the human soul, the encounter of a human mind with the outside world, which creates this kind of irreducible fusion, this this meeting of world with mind that can't be broken down into its pieces because it is a, a, a coherent whole. And so my vision of the stars moving across the sky is in some sense what I am studying when I do the mathematics that enables me to predict where Venus will appear on the 21st of May. Um, it's, it's not that I'm now through that mathematics attaining to something other than the experience I may have of Venus and the stars, but rather that the mathematics is a kind of handmaiden to my experience of it. Because how could it be otherwise? I mean, one of the catastrophes that is now occurring to those who have really put all their eggs in the objectivism basket is that it's really, really hard to say what math describes outside of human experience. Once you get to the, the edges of anything we could conceivably measure or perceive, um, things st start to stop fitting into the buckets that we use that to, to describe things that Galileo would have identified as triangle, circles, squares, position, velocity, etc. Um, and so the inescapability of our human experience is now coming back to us in this really, uh, I think, mysterious and beautiful and in, in some senses troubling way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is challenging. It's not actually challenging science or technology in, in the true sense, because in, in some ways it's science and technology that have, that have brought us here. Um, but it is a, a grievous affront to this kind of idolatry that we have established, which which locates capital R reality in like blo Lego blocks moving around outside of us. Um, and, and it wants to invest in that whole superstructure as some kind of theological meaning, this kind of mother nature cosmic story. Um, that faith is now under assault from all sides. It's been under assault from Christianity, but it's, it's I think, more powerfully under assault from science and philosophy and reason themselves, which have sort of mm. taken the place of the church as the you know standard bearers against materialism. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating moment if we don't all kill each other, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, so no, that's a great way to bridge to your most recent article for the Claremont uh, review of books, um, which is about quantum physics and sort of tackles this at both, I would say, the epistemic and almost phenomenological level. So for people who aren't um, philosophy dorks like Spencer and I, epistemology uh, 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 is the study of knowledge itself, how we come to know things, and phenomenology is sort of the study of the expression of those things that we uh, experience. So I wonder, people can check out that uh, piece, by the way. I think it's it will be paywalled right now, so people should subscribe to the CRB. I'll say yeah, that for you, cool. Spencer. Uh, I do appreciate <laughs> it. Thank also, because I'm in that issue, so if you like me, you can go ahead and read that one as well. Um, but uh, people should check it out. I was really interested in reading it um, because I've obviously consumed a fair bit of your your content and. I wondered what brought you to a place where you were like, this is the, the beast I need to take on, is getting into the history of the quantum moment and what it means for us today. So tell me that story a little bit. 
Yeah, I, I would be delighted to. I mean, I come at this from a very weird route, as you indicate. Um, in some ways, you and I are almost meeting from two opposite poles of these sorts of questions. You know, you, mm -hmm. you obviously have a, an expertise in the the mathematics behind all this, the the industry technology and so forth. Um, I do not, you know, I am I am not here to uh, solve the problems raised by the James Webb telescope or to <laughs> you know, perform some, you know, magnificent proof using Schrodinger's wave functions. I, I, I make no claim to any of that kind of expertise. Um, what I am is a dude bro who likes old books, who has a kind of passing interest in had a kind of passing interest in science and started to notice, you know, there's a lot of like first order philosophical problems going on here mm -hmm. that are not really dependent on like whatever the telescope comes up with next. Do you know what I mean? Like these, these are not mm -hmm. questions that are going to be satisfactorily answered by finding more data. Um, they are kind of premise level questions that, that precede the data that, that will character and color the, the interpretation that we give to the data in this kind of Karl Popper sense. Um, and in fact, that's an argument that was recently made in the New York Times of all places by a couple astrophysicists who said, like, look, this stuff is not just, oh, let's kind of adjust the slider on the age of the universe and like scale mm -hmm. it back a couple billion years and everything will be fine. This is like really a paradigm shift is required, is, is called for here. And the experience that I've had as I dig into this, not just for the CRB piece, but for a few other things that I'll talk about in a second, um, is of you know, going back and back further and further into the history of science and especially the history of quantum physics and hearing people say things that you're like, gee, Werner, like, gee, Niels, that sounds a lot like the book of Genesis, but it's like nobody's in the house. You know, there's like there's there's this kind of um, unawareness. The lights aren't on, you know, and so everybody they're saying, you know, here's Niels Bohr saying things like, well, for the collapse of the wave function at the singularity, uh, the beginning of the universe, like you would need some sort of conscious observer. Like what if we posited an absolute observer that could sort of like resolve these ambiguities once and for all? And you're thinking like, hmm, where have I heard that before? Oh, yes. Like God looked and saw that it was good. And so all of these things just <laughs> to me are, are um, it, I, I, I am not trying to say, oh, science has proven God. You know, we can we can talk about the sort of epistemic status of proofs of God, if you like, but I don't, I don't really go in for them because I think faith is faith. It's not sure. It's not yeah. proof. Uh, but what I am trying to say is science has journeyed so far away from what are really it's expressly theological roots in the scientific revolution, people like Newton and Kepler, um, that it might at, be at this point incapable of recognizing the fact that the questions it's raising are theological, philosophical questions. And the answers to those questions are perhaps most richly on offer um, in scripture. And to me, that is a fascinating possibility. Um, and I'm, I'm not here to say that I've like figured out exactly how all of that works. Um, but one foray into presenting how that might be is this essay on the uh, uh, origin of uh, the advent of wave particle duality and, and Louis de Broglie's sort of uh, first paper on it and the kind of set of interrelated issues that it raises with all of the stuff we've just been talking about, phenomenology, epistemology, science, and so forth. Um, and, and to me, what is exciting and what I am now pursuing actually at, at book length is Ooh. kind of the story, yes, uh, is sort of the story of how this uh, 
it, the, the science, like a kind of wandering journeyman, has ventured away from the mind, human experience, qualia, um, and and like the man who sails around the world and finds himself back home, has now sort of been confronted with all the same things afresh and with new detail and color and with wonderful vividness that we wouldn't have if we hadn't gone on this journey. Um, but th that on some level, I think our idolatry is stopping us from recognizing this moment as one in which we are we are returning home. I think I think that would be very uh, provocative for some listeners, and I'm very uh, happy to hear that this is going to get uh, book length treatment. I think you know first of all, I have to clarify something. Uh, yeah. I am not coming at any of the stuff I do from STEM world. I have two liberal sure. arts degrees. Sure. <laughs> okay. I, uh... So I'm in the same boat. I think sort of where we approach this is that. Uh, I guess this is the the vestiges of my old Marxist uh, tendencies is that I still, when I start with the analysis, look for what is happening with material changes in human history mm. and the way that that interacts with how we talk about things, right? So it's not a surprise to me that the Enlightenment kicks off as we are starting to scale up uh, our thermodynamic competency in terms mm. of how we harness energy and put it to our own usage. These things have a feedback effect um, that trouble our relationship with the past in very surprising ways that create uh, desires for new vantages from which to uh, find meaning and purpose in life. Whether or not those vantages are, are, are valid vistas uh, from which to do that, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I think, Sort of where I'm at here, when I read your work and when I sort of listen to what you're doing on Young Heretics, and when I get a feel for, I know that you have been called by some of the younger fellows at Claremont an honorary Zoomer. Um, uh, and I know, I under, wear that with such pride. It's really know, the title that I cherish most, to be to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I'm sort of wondering, you know, we've done all of this highfalutin talk I think all of it's very real. Ultimately, what one of the things that we're butting up against is this dearth of meaning that we experience today and the ways in which it tends to make people crazy. And I think we really see this when it comes to young people. My understanding is that young people, especially young men, come to you for guidance through some of the work you do at Young Heretics, right? You do a series of lectures on how to make up your mind you know, using ancient and modern texts and things like that. I am sure, because I am a fan who has corresponded with you, that you get uh, correspondence from some of these people. You see young fellows at the Claremont Institute. Talk to me about how they're experiencing this and your experience of being someone that is trying to illuminate these issues for them. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, as as an honorary Zoomer, I would say that the experience of the modern <laughs> world is not bussing for the younger generation. Uh, no, no cap. It, the the Riz is like not for real. For real, the Riz is not on point. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, so that's a very generous and kind description of what I do on Young Heretics. It's also consonant with uh, sort of the more modest version of the experience from from my side of the microphone. Which was literally this, you know, uh, you start to write in the world, you start to make your way as a sort of media 
figure or whatever, ink-stained wretch, whatever you want to call me. Mm-hmm. And um, people nowadays say, you should have a podcast. And I was very resistant to this for a long time because I was like, there are so many podcasts, too many podcasts. I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Like I craft words very carefully and and, and mm-hmm. slowly, you know, um, and I do all this research and whatever. Um, what do I have to contribute to the podcast world, which is already hypersaturated? And finally, you know, when I had been kind of beaten down enough by people telling me this, I thought, you know what, let me just try something because this is actually not something that I see out in the podcast world all that much. Let me just do the thing that I find kind of most appealing, which is just chat about the ancient world and about uh, the Western canon. And I'm going to do it in a way that kind of just disregards the political niceties of the day. That's why it's called Young Heretics is not because I spend all this time like railing against the dogma of the academy, um, but Mm -hmm. actually because I spend very little time taking notice of it at all, except sometimes if I think, you know, our present dysfunction is described or explained by something in Aristotle, I I might mention that. But really, all I'm doing every week is I'm just talking for an hour about some work of literature or painting or, as you indicated, some concept or set of ideas. Right now, I've been on a many, many weeks long survey of the virtues, the the canonical Mm -hmm. cardinal virtues of the pagan world and now the Christian theological virtues. And that's where the kind of like, what do I do with my life stuff comes in. and my experience, my, my expectation of this is that nobody would listen to it, that it would sort of be just like a, a pet project. Instead, my experience was of like holding out, it was as if I was holding out this little morsel of food into the darkness. And it's like your, your whole arm almost gets chewed off because people are so hungry, right? Like it's like, oh my gosh, all of these people who actually do want something that is richer and deeper and more nourishing than everything that our kind of desiccated world has to offer. And they want it because they actually want to know how to live and how to do good and how to be good. I mean, imagine that, right? Like this is supposed to be a completely outdated concept. You're not supposed to have noble aspirations. These were supposed to have gone the way of like, I don't know, the Treaty of Versailles. You know, they were they were just supposed to be kind of a relic of the past. And instead, they are more urgent than ever if if you can offer them and engage with them without being precious or or uh, pious about them. Mm-hmm. Um, because another problem that we have is the defenders of both the faith and the um, canon, who are very well-meaning and good people and do good work in the world, uh, often succumb to a kind of antiquarianism or archaism that they're so inspired, rightly and meaningfully inspired by the nobility of the past and so disgusted, rightly, by the decay and the degradation and the decadence of, of the present, um, that all they can really offer is a sort of um, wistful bow tie wearing, backwards looking, uh, you know, museum curation. And I'm not really all that interested in that, for one thing. And for another thing, I don't actually think it's it does the best service to the, the classics. I think what people when when people connect to me, when people say you got me reading Aristotle for the first time or whatever, um, it's because I said something that made them think, oh, I, I am not just going through the motions. Do you know what I mean? Like there's mm-hmm. actually a point and a purpose to my every action. And if you can invest people's lives with that or help them to do that, I think you're doing what you're but the, the reason that we're here, you know, the reason that we do great books programs at all. Um, 
And so in some weird way, like the Zoomers, maybe the Zoomers are kind of my, my people because although I'm actually not all that hip in, in that respect, despite my fluent use of Zoomer slang, like uh, nevertheless, the Zoomers are weirdly more attuned to and alive to the urgency of meaning in the world, um, even if their upbringing has sort of deprived them of good sources for that. They also are extremely desperate for it. And that's maybe why the the meeting between me and them has has been kind of fruitful on both sides is because this is stuff that I think really is aflame with urgency. And I think we've only got a few more generations before, you know, it's too, kind of too late to recover it in some way mm. to be to be a little grim about it. Um, so I, I, I love the Zoomers for for their hunger. Yeah, absolutely. I was so I, I want to say a couple things about that. First is is. One of the things I heard really early on when I was first getting sober in AA um, is somebody was complaining about somebody basically acting inappropriately at a meeting because they're yeah. full of drunks, right? <laughs> uh, usually you're not allowed Lucky. to show up drunk, uh, though that has happened. Uh, right. But this is somebody who's asking inappropriately. And this person who was complaining was new. And the person who was counseling them been around for a while. And he just looked at this young guy and said, look, man, this ain't a country club, hmm. you know? And I think yeah. that I've taken that ethos uh, towards discussions of the classics or, or anything else. This ain't a country club. Hmm. You know, if you want to be fishers of men for whatever it is, you know, you need to cast a wide net. Um, and so I very much uh, am sympathetic to uh, that idea there. The other thing is earlier this year, I was invited by Paul Didick and Alex Priu, mutual friend of ours, who's at the New Thinkery, um, to uh, give a lecture on sort of the energy transition and the industrial revolution and stuff like that. And uh, the, I, it was my first time doing that. And one of the things that I found out is that faculty will just buy you dinner afterwards, which was great. And so I got to talk to all of these people who teach and talk to Zoomers all the time. And one of the things that they said is they have never met a more deracinated or rootless generation, nor uh, have they met one so hungry for theological and philosophical truths. They just have no tradition from which to access any of that. And it is palpable as soon as they step into the classroom. And this was true for people teaching philosophy as well as people just teaching literature, you know, is that this was sort of common across everyone that I spoke with that night in the humanities. So I think one of the things that, um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this show isn't just for all of your uh, powerful insights that I think everybody's gotten to witness here, uh, is that um, is also a gesture of greater unity between these mm. two worlds because they were once uh, more cooperative between yeah. the sciences and the humanities. Um, and so I think that that is the direction that we almost act to embark on mm. because we have now stumbled into a way where we need theology and metaphysics again. Right. Uh, that's very powerfully put. And you, you joked with me before we started recording that like my 
attitude in this domain can be summed up as do you do you guys mind if i tell you about the lord right like yeah. um, and and my my feeling is like it, it, it's almost that yeah it's it's sort of like why not do you know what i mean you know, what, mm-hmm. what what is the, the resistance to these kinds of questions and ideas since we all know and live as if we know that the world is not simply a collection of objects a big box called space with you know billiard balls moving through it that that doesn't make sense at a philosophical level at a mathematical level and especially at a human level which is the level that that really interests me because at the end of the day if you're not <laughs> if you're not dealing with the experience of a, of a human being uh, the the reasons behind your actions start to dissolve and disappear. Mm-hmm. I mean, we kind of began by talking about this when when we talked about nature as as a cruel god. Um, we are actually totally unique in in these very interesting and and painful sometimes in difficult ways, but also very lovely and beautiful ways. And I I sort of suspect that the anti-human ideology which begins has its seeds as we've now discussed in kind of you know pre-newtonian mathematical physics um takes on a kind of millenarian character i think in mm-hmm. france um you, you know with with voltaire and laplace and the philosophes um, and then really you know morphs and mutates into an all-consuming description not simply of the world outside of us but of us as well as machines as products of, of a machinery um, that whole way of thinking has now really started to sputter and malfunction. And it's, it, it, it's like a kind of operating system that has way past its usefulness and, and now is causing more problems than it solves. And, and so there's got to be a route out of this somewhere. And, and in some ways, the people who are trying to meld with Gaia and the people who are trying to starlink themselves into oblivion are offering a way out they're they're basically saying okay you want an elevator to the the great tomorrow like here it is and one thing that gives me a lot of urgency when i wake up in the morning is the feeling that although i find those two ideas of of kind of environmentalism and transhumanism although i find them appalling and and morally disgusting I also find them incredibly vivid, uh, forceful, confident, and powerful. That is to say, the people who uh, espouse these ideas genuinely think that they are going to bring about the completion of the Tower of Babel. And the technology, as you indicated, now exists for the first time to make their uh, sort of sinister ideations into a reality. And my concern about the church about people who think what i think what you think about um the humanities and the canon is that we don't have the same degree of confidence or urgency about our mission um, mm. we don't have the same level of specificity about what humanity is going to look like under our aegis in the 21st 22nd 23rd century going forward um and and so um, unless we can 
infuse the present with all of the kind of wonder uh, that we see in in the kind of great works of the past i think we're actually going to be steamrolled over by these uh, utopianists and, and millenarians who, who think they're going to bring about the apocalypse um now it's my faith because i i believe that that is not what's going to happen but i think that you know if we have a calling in this moment as intellectuals as uh, writers thinkers podcasters whatever um a huge part of it um, is to sort of shake people by the lapels and say, like, do you realize what a fearful, wonderful creature you are? And do you understand that it contained in the very thought that you had this morning that you wanted a cup of coffee is as a kind of universe of transcendence? Like, if we can get that across, then I think we stand a fighting chance. I think that's right. And I think we will leave it there. So, Spencer, first of all, thank you for coming on. Uh, it was a delight to have you and people can check out again, all of Spencer's stuff in the show notes. So remember my friends, stay strong, stay sharp and stay radiant. We will see you next time.